It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, it's Manveen here. We've got something a little bit different for you today. This episode of Stories of Our Times is the second of a special two-part podcast presented by my colleague, the Times Berlin correspondent, Oliver Moody. If you haven't listened to part one, please go back and start there. Yesterday, I told you the story of the first Romeo agent, a man sent by East Germany's shadowy secret police, the Stasi, to seduce a woman who worked in the West German Chancellery. They were quite often sort of middle-aged men who had proven themselves to be ideologically reliable and psychologically and emotionally intelligent in a manner that was required for the job. While the agent, a man named Albert Glazer, didn't garner all that much information out of his target, he did prove the concept could work. It was more about getting a foot in the door, so getting information on the West German capital, on the conditions for espionage there. Today, we hear the story of a second, much more successful Romeo agent, a man with skeletons in his closet, but who unearthed corruption at the highest levels. It's quite shocking that these things not only happened, but then for such a long time were brushed under the carpet. And found that the West German state was spying on its own people. The Federal Intelligence Service, which was legally strictly forbidden to spy within the German borders, supplied Adenauer with information on his political opponents and discover how the Stasi, notorious for surveying their own population's every move, actually infiltrated the West. To me, it means that it gives you a better idea, really, about the extent of the Stasi's reach, kind of beyond German borders. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and Sunday Times. I'm Oliver Moody, The Times Berlin correspondent. Today, The Stasi's Romeo Agents, Part 2, The Spy Who Left Me. At the end of yesterday's episode, we learned how the first Romeo identified another woman he thought the Stasi should target. The historian... Gunnar Tarka 
has been able to piece together these previously untold stories from discoveries he made in the Stasi archive. He found a report in which Albert Glazer, the first Romeo, described the new target as having a good general knowledge, is intelligent and has a confident manner, is sociable and likes to dance. The new target, or Juliet, was a secretary working in the West German Chancellery called Margarete Breitbach, known to her friends as Gretel. Glaser's superiors in East Berlin thought that Breitbach, quote, missed the right time to find a husband. It's important to stay respectful, but I think we can agree with that assessment that she probably did want to find a permanent partner as a single woman in her early 30s, and that she did want to marry both for personal and for economic reasons. And how did the Stasi go about choosing the Romeo agent they would send to try and woo Gretel Breitbach? The easiest way would have been to take a man who already lived in West Germany, and by the mid-1950s, the Stasi had a number of unofficial collaborators positioned in Bonn and in surrounding cities. Albert had told his superiors about precisely the kind of attributes a suitor for Gretel might need. She was looking for an older man, being well-off, having a considerable social network, and who had to offer something exciting. That, from the Stasi's point of view, that Romeo was to woo um, Gretel Breitbach, had to seem trustworthy, not only to Breitbach, but also to her superiors. So who did the Stasi end up selecting for the seduction of Gretel Breitbach? There was a man by the name of Herbert Söhler, an affluent man in his mid to late 50s, was raised in Hamburg, so had the right West German Hanseatic accent, was divorced, which was not that uncommon anymore, and had a job as a real estate agent. And what was his backstory? He was born in 1899, got recruited into the German infantry. In the 1920s, 1930s, he worked first as a merchant and later as a flight instructor which was a very unconventional job at the time. He welcomed the Nazis' rise to power in 1933, and he immediately joined the Nazi party. And when the Luftwaffe, the German Air Force, was rebuilt, Zula applied, and as such, he was called up days before the German attack on Poland in 1939. And after the war, he lived in the Soviet occupational zone of Germany for a bit, before moving to the Rhineland and becoming an estate agent. Zerda's backstory is important. His time in the Nazi German armed forces mirrored the careers of many senior officials in the new West German government. This helped to allay suspicions about his true motives. Suspicions which might have been aroused had they bothered to delve into his past. Nobody ever cared to look uh, in his Wehrmacht file. And when I did, I certainly didn't expect to find anything uh, interesting. 
but his file is unusually huge and full of uh, unpleasant details. The most damaging is that Söhler had, in 1938, repeated sexual intercourse with a 15-year-old girl that became public, caused huge uproar. Söhler's wife left him. The father of that girl had tried to protect his daughter, sent her to England, away from Söhler. But Söhler was such a sexual predator that he flew to England and chased after that girl. Fast forward a few years to 1956. Zöller's wartime service, his plausible manner, and his political awakening in a Soviet prisoner of war camp all made him a strong candidate to be a Stasi spy in West Germany. A Romeo with the right profile to target the new Juliet. Since before the war, he had good connections. Maybe he had a bit of starting capital by the Stasi. In any case, his real estate business went really well. He was wealthy. He had a wide social network and was an active member of two flying clubs, continuing his associations with the aviation community. And those flying clubs secured him further access to politicians, to high-ranking civil servants and important businessmen, and to somebody like Gretel Breitbach that was impressive. Zöller, who was 57, had another ace up his sleeve to win over 34-year-old Gretel. To give Zöller the, the wow factor, he was able to offer Breitbach an exciting round trip over the roofs of Bonn. That was one of their first rendezvous. And as far as I know, that was the first time Gretel Breitbach ever flew in a plane. What made Gretel such an attractive target was that she was the secretary to Hans Kilp, the personal assistant, an odd job man, to the all-powerful West German Chancellor, Konrad Adenauer. Back then, the West German political system was dubbed a chancellor democracy, meaning that the head of the government was much more powerful than, for example, Olaf Scholz is right now. And Kilp was one of the few key and very close employees who helped Adenauer in keeping his position that strong. He helped Adenauer with his correspondence, he prepared his meetings, his travels and so on. And another main staple of his work was corruption. For context, here's the British-based German historian Katja Hoyer. There was certainly a lot of corruption. So if you imagine, you know, Germany is a bombed out country at this point, lots of stuff needs to be rebuilt, agencies need to be set up. So the, the contracts that the government gave out, for example, were quite often given out under various <laughs> dubious, you know, ideas and, and mostly down to contacts that people in government had with people in the industry and, and so on. Both Adenauer and his assistant Hans Kilp had accepted gifts worth five figure sums mainly from the car manufacturer Daimler-Benz, but also from other companies. Kilp maintained close contacts with the Federation of German Industry, the most important business association, and secured them preferential access to the chancellery and pushed their interests. And in return, those companies made donations 
to Adenauer's Christian Conservative Party, to Adenauer personally. The companies uh, influenced the press, especially the Catholic Conservative Press, and awarded other favors. While the sleaze was interesting to Zola, Kilb's other activities in the shadows were every bit as intriguing. He did a lot of shady and some outright illegal stuff. For example, there was the Federal Intelligence Service, the BND, that illegally spied upon the Social Democratic Party, which was the main left-wing opposition party. Söhler was able to report that the BND, which was legally strictly forbidden to spy within the German borders, supplied Adenauer with information on his political opponents and that the agency influenced and manipulated sections of the press in favor of the Adenauer government. And both of those claims have recently been confirmed by historical research. So, Zöhler, through his relationship with Kretl, had managed to find out that the West German government was illegally spying on its political opponents, which is pretty extraordinary from today's perspective. It is quite shocking that these things not only happened, but then for such a long time were kind of ignored and brushed under the carpet. One of the German historians who's done a lot of work on exposing this scandal once described it to me as a kind of German Watergate. Do you think that's a fair comparison? I think, yes, in the nature of what was done, perhaps, you know, in the sense that spying on political opponents. But I think the situation was very different because in the US, by that point, by, by the time that Watergate happened, you had a, a confident democracy and, and a democratic culture. Whilst I think the situation in West Germany at the time after the Second World War was such that, you know, democratic culture hadn't really quite set in. We'll come back to what the Stasi tried to do with the information they uncovered a little later. But how did the new Romeo and Juliet relationship unfold? At first, for a couple of years, everything seemed to go well. They were a couple. Zola was able to extract quite a lot of information. But then disaster struck. In the winter of 1958-59, when Söhler and Breitbach made a vacation in a Swiss Alpine resort, those kinds of vacation were a regular feature of the Romeo relationships, where the Stasi supplied money to the Romeo so that they could offer something special to their victims. But in that Alpine resort in the winter, Söhler was quite unlucky and got pneumonia, got very ill. You have to remember, he's a 60-year-old man at that stage. He had fought in two world wars and didn't live a healthy lifestyle. And it soon became clear that Zöller would not be able to continue his work for long and that he had to be pulled back soon. So the Stasi was forced to make a decision. And what was that decision? Before returning to East Germany, Söhler made an attempt to recruit Breitbach 
for the Stasi. He did not reveal himself to be a Stasi spy because the Stasi had a quite a low reputation in West Germany and he wanted to maintain his notion of grandeur as the hobby aviator. So he chose to present himself as an officer of the Red Army, also of a communist force, and revealed that he had spied on West Germany, but he gave the aim that it was merely to preserve peace. He presented Breitbach with his situation that he was very ill and that there was only one place where he could receive the medical support he needed and that was in a medical center in the Soviet Union. But that center would only treat him if he continued uh, to supply the Red Army with information from West Germany, from the Chancellery. And he could only obtain that information through Breitbach. Zola presented his Juliet with a life-or-death scenario. Supply secrets to him, and he would live. Turn her back, and he would die. Given that scenario, Breitbach complied. Zola basically vanished. Breitbach, abandoned by her Romeo, was assigned a new Stasi contact and continued to provide him with information. But did the plan work? After that meeting, Breitbach received a new handler, whom she regularly met in Switzerland, and whom she duly delivered uh, information. Why do you think that worked? I don't think she had any political motivations. She certainly acted out of love. and. What certainly did help was that Zöhler promised her that he had deposited some money, which she would inherit in case of his death. So it was, I think, mostly emotional motivation and some economic motivation in the background. This new arrangement with her, her second handler lasted for a few months. What went wrong then? What went wrong was that after Zola left, first, the feelings dried up. And second, that not having a boyfriend anymore, she resumed contacts to old friends, took up old networks. And eventually, one of those men decided to propose to her. And she accepted, decided to marry him. And the two things which many secretaries did at the time when marrying she immediately quit her job at the chancellery and at the same time she decided to break off contacts with the Stasi, which left the Stasi rather powerless because exposing Breitbach, the Stasi would have gained nothing, but Breitbach would have been able to reveal the Stasi's methods of operation. And when I researched in the chancellery, in the archive and in the HR office, they didn't know anything that was going on. Coming up, did the information Herbert Zöller uncovered have any real effect? 
but first. Hello, I'm Jane Mulkerens, Associate Editor of The Times Magazine. By listening in, you make it possible for me to bring you exclusive stories that you won't get anywhere else. Get to the heart of the stories that matter every day with The Times and The Sunday Times. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Herbert Zerner, a spy and an ex-Nazi, has swept the secretary of the West German Chancellor's personal assistant off her feet. And in doing so, he has learned about corruption at the top of the West German government. Not only that, he has uncovered a Watergate-like scandal that shows the West German intelligence services spying on the government's political opponents. The Stasi tried to exploit this discovery to discredit their Western counterparts. They published propaganda, especially in the year 1958. For example, which is quite funny, I think, they published a poem which you could translate as, or as I tried to translate part of it so that it remains a poem in English, where it reads, He knows the score like no one before. Six years a worm in the chancellor's ear. He shadowed the man year after year. All the rats in Bonn, he cans to the core. So that is the the way the Stasi tried to portray Kilp as one of those rats in a rat-infested West German capital. And what the Stasi also did was try to connect the person of Hans Kilp whom nobody in West Germany knew because it was just men in the in the second row, so to speak, to connect his illegal dealings with Adenauer and try to tarnish the image of the towering figure that was Adenauer back then. Zerla's work as a Romeo was done, and he stopped spying for the Stasi. But he did pop up on East German television in 1961 in a show aimed at a West German audience. Herr Söhler, Sie waren jahrelang 
Although he didn't reveal that he was a spy, but just told the audience that he was a, a German businessman and real estate agents with good contacts. He talked about Hans Kilp, about the corruption. You know, the whole atmosphere in the chancellery, the corruption, the spying, which is a big deal there, the fusion between business and politics. It's also disgusting that I said to myself, you need to get out of there, you've got to go. And told the audience that East Germany was basically the better state and that he now wanted to talk about the corruption and the breaking of the law in West Germany. If I've handed the GDR authorities a series of interesting documents about the Chancellery and the Confederation of German Industry, if I speak publicly now and tell people about my experiences, I'm doing it because I hope it will bring one or two people in West Germany to think again and maybe it will open their eyes a bit. And yet, the television interview and the Stasi propaganda campaign barely changed anything in the West. After all, would you pay much attention to lurid criticism from your enemy? There is a lot of damaging information. There's one really big problem in using that, and that is the West German population, which also knew at least the gist of what was happening. You have to remember one thing regarding the fact of corruption in Germany, both Germanys, in the late 1940s, everybody broke rules. So in the mid to late 1950s, there was still the feeling that Adenauer was just doing some of that illegal, shady business just in a larger scale as everybody else had done. A sort of really comfortable lifestyle was setting in and this was something that many people were quite happy with and so didn't want to ask questions exactly about how that came about or how it operated. People just weren't all that interested in this culture of democracy, free speech and so on, not only because they hadn't experienced it but also because material concerns weighed in much heavier than we can imagine it now. So what happened to the programme over the rest of the Cold War? In the first years of the 1960s, was a case of two sisters who actually both worked as secretaries in the chancellery and who had been this time openly recruited by the Stasi. They ceased working for the agency in 1964 and 1965, respectively. Since the mid-1960s, there was a drought where the Stasi had no one in the chancellery. And then we have a conveyor belt-like execution of the Romeo method in the 70s and 80s. And for that, the Söhler-Breitbach case became the role model. And that proved to be very successful from 1973 onwards up until 1989. The Stasi managed to recruit informants at the very top of the West German Chancellery's interior, economics and foreign affairs departments. All were recruited via the Romeo method and worked for a few years. 
What kind of legacy did the Romeo project have in Germany? Well, I think it gives another dimension of the Stasi. It makes it a more kind of complex and, and more complicated institution. The Stasi has a reputation of being internally ruthless and incredibly efficient. But when it comes to external operations, people have always kind of assumed that they were dilettantish almost in their you know, attitude towards things and their technology that they used and, and that they could never really get to the heart of things. It was always downplayed how much they actually achieved. To me, it means that it gives you a better idea, really, about the extent of the Stasi's reach, kind of beyond um, German borders, and it, it complicates the whole picture. In terms of that society-wide legacy, what kind of shadow does the Stasi still cast over life in contemporary Germany? I think a lot of people find it still very difficult to contemplate the idea that they were spied upon by their neighbours, their friends, their colleagues, people who who know that they were watched or had a feeling that they were being watched quite often don't want to know who exactly it was that spied on them because it might well be the person that you're still friends with or the person that lives next to you. And you then sort of see your own uh, life narrated in their words because they were watching you all the time. And this is still able to break friendships or taint relationships with co-workers or neighbours even even today. And, and so a lot of Germans, East Germans, sort of just turn a blind eye to that and don't want to know who did it and who exactly knew what about them and was feeding it back to the state. Today, the Romeo programme is often romanticised as a kind of glamorous escapade where handsome young men seduce their way into the heart of an enemy government like communist James Bonds. Thanks to Gunnar Tarka's painstaking research, we now know that it was in truth a much grimier affair. The first Romeos were unprepossessing men who spent years gradually worming their way into the affections of vulnerable women to the point where these relationships came to resemble marriages. These first missions took a horrible toll on their targets and provided the basis for an industrial production line of East German spies systematically drilled in the frailties of female psychology. The Romeo Project didn't just weaponize sex, it weaponized the human heart itself. It was every inch the product of one of the modern world's most repressive and intrusive totalitarian regimes. It feels fitting to end with the words of three other women, so-called Juliettes, whose lives were devastated by the operation. He said he needed me because he was all alone in the world. I'm not sure whether it was pity I felt, but I did have this sense of being somehow responsible for him, a kind of maternal feeling. And when he visited me at my flat, it felt to me as if he was coming home, that he was coming back to where he belonged. It seems to me now that he has to live with himself, and that must be hard enough. But I think I've worked through a lot of this. This is his issue now. I don't have any feelings of hatred. I think that if we hide away then the people who did these things to us have won. And that just cannot happen. Because if we withdraw ever further, 
then we have few opportunities to confront ourselves frankly with the past. And when I'm doing really, really badly in myself, then sometimes the rage overtakes me and I say to myself, no, these guys who did this to me cannot win. And then I pull my hair back up again and somehow limp on. I think it's so devastating that some shit, stupid assholes, whom I don't know from a hole in the ground, sit in some stupid shit office in East Germany, picking people, women out, like animals for testing, and saying, OK, we're going to destroy her life. If he would walk into my life, like I remember him, I'm terribly afraid that I would fall in love with him again. And because I'm now alone again, totally alone, a very big part of me would say yes. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. With me, Oliver Moody, Berlin correspondent at The Times, and my guests, the German historians Gunnar Tarka and Katja Hoyer. You can read more about the Romeo spies online at thetimes.co.uk with a subscription. And there's a link in the description notes of this podcast. The producers were Edward Drummond and Will Rowe. The executive producer is Kate Ford. And sound design was by David Crackles. See you again soon. <laughs>